God's faithfulness. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come? Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Pat, thank you very much. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word in our hands, and for the gift of your spirit within us. May you be our teacher this evening, and may we learn something more of who we are and of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you have a right view of yourself? A right view of yourself that's neither too high and too lofty and not too low and lowly. As a church, as All Saints Ecclesall, how do we have a view of ourselves that isn't too high and too exalted, but isn't down in the ground and the dirt? What does it mean for us to see ourselves, to see other people rightly, in a way that is accurate to who they are? And when we think about our faith, how do we understand what God's done 
in a way that changes us and our lives. Paul, as, Romans, as, as Roland has said, is in Romans. And this great letter, we now arrive at this great chapter, chapter 3, and Paul wants his understanding of who we are and his understanding of God and what he's done to shape our lives. And so tonight, as Roland says, we'll look at it in two halves. First of all, to be silent. God wants us to be silent because we're all under sin. You might have seen that, verse 19, verse 20, page 150. The great conclusion to Paul's whole argument about sin is verse 19, chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's Paul's purpose as he thinks about who we are so that we're silent before God. So that's what we'll look at first this evening. And we've jumped in, we're we're partway through an argument, but Paul's been talking about the Jews and who they are and what it means for them to have the law and have the promises of God and have the covenant of God and have all the experience and all the knowledge and all the history of being God's people. And he asks, chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? In other words, what's the point, what's the purpose, what's the benefit of being God's people in the Old Testament? And he says, much in every way. There's loads of advantages. And he goes on to explain and outline some of those. There are huge advantages to being part of the Jewish people. But then, chapter 3, verse 9, are the Jewish people any better off? When it comes to God and our standing with God, is it any better to be a Jew than a Gentile? Is it any better to be people with the law of God or without it? And Paul says... No, not at all. Paul says for each of us, whether we think of ourselves as religious or not religious, as moral or not moral, Paul says for all of us, actually there's no advantage to our religious heritage and credentials. Chris brilliantly helped us think about this last last week. You might remember the halo, you might remember the hammer sitting on the chair, you might remember the confirmation book. There's no advantage And then he says, verse 9, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. And he goes on, as it's written, and then he lists quote after quote after quote. If you ever write an essay, students, if you're writing essays at the moment for A-levels, you'll know sometimes you need some good quotes to make your argument really strong, don't you? In fact, I was talking to a dad this morning, they were saying, how are you doing, how's the family? He said this morning he'd left his 17-year-old son trying to sort out his quotes and footnotes for an essay. Hard working on a Sunday morning. Paul's doing this here, the Apostle Paul, with huge quotes from the Old Testament about the fact that we're all under sin. Do you hear what he says? There's no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Now, we could be forgiven for thinking Paul's just on an off day here. He's having a bad day. He got out of bed the wrong side of the bed, and he's very down on himself and the whole human race. The problem with that is, is he's quoting from the very words of God at each and every turn. And so what are we to do with the good that we know many people do? Think about your neighbours, your friends, your colleagues, your family members. They do a lot of good, don't they? So how are we to understand Paul's words when he says, no one's righteous, not even one, no one has understanding, no one seeks God, no one does good, not even one? 
Well, when you're not sure of the answer and you're preaching, you look at the theologians and see what they've said. And this is what one man, John Frame, has said. Here's what he says. To please God, our works must be done to the glory of God. Obedient to the word of God, motivated by faith and love of God. Unbelievers, people who don't trust Christ, never do good works in this sense. Indeed, even believers' works, their their life, their faith, are always falling short according to this standard. But those who don't believe in Christ are able to do things that look good to us. They don't look good to God, for God knows the heart. But they look good to us, and they do indeed bring benefits to society. So those we know and love, family and friends, colleagues and neighbours, who don't trust Christ, often improve society through their skills, their ideas. They make scientific discoveries. They produce labour-saving inventions. They develop businesses that supply jobs. They produce works of art and entertainment. It's a long quote, but you get the point. People in this world, they don't need to believe God and follow God to do brilliant things in in all sorts of ways. But do they do it out of love for God? Do they do it out of faith in God? Do they do it to the glory of God? Well, no. And so ultimately, and from God's perspective, that is not good. It's, It's not just that this is some of us, is it? Did you hear the repeated, no one, no one, no one? And then he says, all have turned aside. So we're made to know God, to love God, to centre our whole life on him, to to be orientated around him. Our life comes from him. Every breath you have, every heartbeat you have, everything you are, everything that you have comes from God. We're made to love God. That's how our life is meant to be centred. And yet from the Garden of Eden on, what have we done? We've turned away from God. We've gone our own way. Think back to the Garden. What are Adam and Eve doing when God calls to them and says, where are you? They're hiding. Hiding from the creator in the creation. And you can do that in ways that look moral and a good life, or you can do that in ways that are immoral and more what we might say a bad life. But you're still running away from God. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the idea that people naturally seek God is like the idea of a cat and a mouse. And the idea of a mouse seeking after a cat, it, it doesn't happen naturally. We run away, we turn away, each and every one of us, to their own way. And so where does this leave us? What does this mean for the whole human race? Well, it means we're all the same, doesn't it? Each and every one of us. Paul will go on in the the verses to talk about our tongues and our throats and our words and how they spew out all sorts of things. Think about the playground tomorrow at school. Think about the office, think about Twitter, now called X, apparently. All the sort of things that spew out of these places. And so, verse 9, are we any better off? No, not at all. We are all under the power of sin. And so, I, I just want to apply this in a few ways before we then reflect in the silence about this for ourselves. First of all, for those of us with too high a view of ourselves, that would be some of us, that's me sometimes, too high a view of ourselves. Well, we're no better, are we? If we're here tonight and we trust Christ, 
God tells us there was nothing in us that made us any better than the neighbour, the colleague, the family member who at this moment in time, this night, does not trust Christ. The reason we're accepted and loved by God and made a child of his is nothing to do with ourselves. That, that humbles us, doesn't it? That humbles us to realise actually it's not about me. It's nothing I've done. It's not what I have achieved. And I think this then gives us a radically new way of looking at others. We spend our whole life thinking about them and us, don't we? Those people and us. We who are like this and those other people over there, we might think about that in all sorts of different ways. But the Apostle Paul says we're all together. It's the great leveling up, if I can put it that way. We can think we are better than so many people, but the Apostle Paul and God himself says no. We might think we have better morals than someone else. We, we live in a bit different place, a better place than others. We speak better than others. We're more educated than others. We've got better qualifications. We've got a better job. We're even a Christian minister. The Apostle Paul says we're no better whatsoever. And so actually this radically humanizes how we look at everyone, how we see others, how we treat the person next to us in the office, how we think about the person in school that we find difficult to get on with, how we think about the down and outs in society. Some of those slightly older might remember the John Cleese sketch with Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett. Do you remember the class system? Do you remember that one? John Cleese, very tall, Ronnie Corbett, Ronnie Ronnie Barker. Have a look at it later when you go home if you've not heard of it. But in essence, they're comparing each other. They're looking down at each other, looking up at each other. Do you remember the famous line, I look up to him because he is upper class, but I look down on him because he is lower class. In other words, we look up up to some people, we look down on others, and all the time we're trying to find out who we are based on who we look up to and who we look down to. The Apostle Paul says it's not like that for the Christian. Are we any better? Not at all. And finally, just to think about this, for those who perhaps here tonight who aren't Christians or not sure what they think or exploring God and faith for themselves, I think for most of us, whether we're in the church often or not, we think the way to get to God is by what we do. We might not say it, but that's our default. If we're having a good day, we think God likes us a bit more. If we're having a bad day, we've, we've struggled with the kids, we've, we've said that, we've done that, we think God might not be as pleased. Do you see what it says, verse 19, chapter 3? I beg your pardon, verse 20. No human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law. I think most people, if you went outside in the street tomorrow, did a survey, how do people become friends with God? They'd say something about doing good, being moral, doing what the law says. God says, here's the surprise, God says, verse 20, no human being will be justified, will be accepted, will be declared right with God that way. And I think that's one of the many reasons why Christianity is true. You wouldn't make this up as a faith system, would you, where basically we all fail. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinking. You wouldn't make this up unless it's true. It's not really a way to make friends and influence people. It's not flattery, is it? We're all doomed. But it's true. And so for a few moments, what I'd like us to do in the quiet is just reflect on that. Paul says the point of these verses is so that we're silent before God. Silent before the God who sees all and is our judge. 
And so you might want to think about these words for yourself. You might want to think about them for how you view others. But a few moments for silent thoughts and confession. And then Pat will come and give our next part of the reading. So this is the continuation of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, continuing to read from verse 21 to the end. It's on page 150. Um, Salvation by faith, through faith. But now, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith, He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. These words and and that first paragraph have been described as the most important words in the most important chapter, in the most important book that's ever been written. And so when you're a preacher, you think, wow, what an opportunity to preach here. And then you think, oh, I hope you do a good job. Um, So these words have also been called, perhaps more comically and more simply, Paul's big but. Did you see it? Chapter 3, verse 21, but. After everything we've seen from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards about humanity and our sin and guilt and under God's judgment, Paul's big but, but now. Irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. The righteousness of God. This is one of those big Bible words. Righteousness, God's right verdict on ourselves. God's approval. A sort of legal term. We've been in the docks, we've been silent before God. Now God is speaking a word. You're in the right. You are approved. You are accepted. The righteousness of of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Righteousness seems a very religious word, but actually we're all looking for it all the time, whether we think we're religious or not. Righteousness, validation, approval, acceptance, worth. Think about the likes on whichever social media you follow or the kudos on something like Strava. Think about the social anxiety. Do they like me or not? Think about at school. You're working so hard to get the approval and acceptance of others. Think about your colleagues. Think about your spouse, your parents. I know grown men who are still grasping to get the approval of their mother or father. Something we try to achieve. We'll only feel good about ourselves if I've achieved that, if I've got those grades, if I'm that job, if I do that work. Then I'll feel good. Then I'll feel justified. Then my existence will be worth something. A famous old film, Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell, the great story. Do you remember Harold Abrahams? The great 100-meter sprinter. He's having a conversation with his coach just before the 100-meter race. The greatest moment of his life. But he says this. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor. Four feet wide, 100 meters long and only 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. It's the very thing his whole life has been gearing towards, but he feels like if he doesn't do it, his whole life is not worth anything. He thinks it's a bit extreme. Well, think about our own lives. Desperate to make our life worth something. Desperate for approval, acceptance, success, then I'll get there. Well, if you think how much success you might have in your life, then think about something Madonna said many years ago, 1991, in Vanity Fair, and think how much success she's had. Listen to her longing, thirst for righteousness, for acceptance, for approval. This is what she said. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. If anyone's not being mediocre, it's Madonna. And that feeling is always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, Again, you could think, oh, Madonna, that's neurotic. But don't you recognize that restlessness in our own hearts, even if we've been Christians for decades, longing for the approval of others, desperate to be accepted, desperate for that verdict of right across our lives. Well, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, God tells us tonight that that approval, that acceptance, that verdict of right across our lives has been given and is given as a gift. And it's only found in God. Verse 23, the problem's summarized again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I still remember learning that as a memory verse many years ago. But we are justified, verse 24, we are made in the right with God. We are declared right. We are accepted. We are given approval by God How? Verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. These verses have transformed the whole world. You might not feel it on a warm Sunday evening in the middle of September, but they have. Martin Luther the great German monk, the reformer of the 16th century, when he understood what righteousness really, really was, when he realized what the righteousness of God actually meant for him, then it transformed his whole life. This is what he said. 
when I discovered that the righteousness of God is not something that I earn or that I do or that I work slavishly for, when I realized it is a gift of God given to me, then I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The righteousness that we're all feeling, whether on social media, at school, at work, with our family, our parents, Harold Abrahams, Madonna, this righteousness is given to us as a gift and received with empty hands and an open heart by faith. That's a gift. And you know what it's like with gifts. They're so precious, aren't they? When you receive something, the Christmas present, the birthday present from someone who has thought so carefully for you just what you want, just what you need. But then there's that terrible thought sometimes, or maybe it's just me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. What what can I get them next time? You know when you have someone around for dinner and you think, oh no, we've never had them for dinner. Now we need to have them around for dinner. That's our problem with gifts. Well, we sang that we're children of God. What do children do when little Rosanna wants anything? What does she do? She just grabs it. There's no pride. There's no thinking twice. There's certainly not any repaying to mum and dad. It's a free gift given to us. In the 39 articles, the Church of England sort of summarizes our faith. And Article 11 says that this great belief of justification, being right with God by faith, it's old language, but it says it's a most wholesome doctrine. And here's the bit I love. Very full of comfort. Can you feel something of the comfort it is to know this night again for you that God accepts you? That God declares you in the right? And do you see how he's done it? It's remarkable. Because the, the challenge is, how can God say people are right when they're wrong? How can he do that? Well, look what he's done. Verse 23, God put forward Christ as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, which is effective through faith. And he did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. We, we typically think the cross of Christ displays and demonstrates God's love. And Paul will say, chapter 5, verse 8, it does exactly that. But in Romans, at least, before God's love is ever demonstrated on the cross, it's his justice. It's his righteousness. It's his rightness. How can God make people like you and I right with him when we're wrong? How can God declare people like you and I good when we're not? And here's the answer. God put forward a sacrifice of atonement. God put forward himself in the person of his son. And he put himself in the place we should have been, under sin, guilty, and under God's judgment. And he took it once and for all. And so if the penalty has been paid, if the judgment of God has fallen on another, there is no penalty left, nothing now to do, and nothing now to fear. It's a legal term to be declared righteous. You're, you're not only forgiven, you're not only let off, you're declared in the right. 
You're not only told you can go, you're told now you can come. Come to God. And so what does this mean for us? Well, the Apostle Paul brilliantly knows the human heart and he says, verse 27, so what becomes of boasting? He says, don't don't think about your sins now. Think about what you boast in. Think about where your identity is wrapped up in. Think about what you use, perhaps silently, because most of us are British and we wouldn't dare boast too loudly in front of others, but what in our minds and hearts do we boast in that makes us feel better about ourselves, look down on others? What are those things? And the Apostle Paul says, what becomes of boasting, it is excluded. By what law? By the law of faith. If we come with empty hands, there's nothing left to say. There's nothing left to do. And so to finish, famous words. If we're not to boast in ourselves, what are we to boast in? As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, Galatians 6, to boast only in the cross of Christ. Isaac Watts put it so well. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them through his blood. A moment of silence and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus, for your love for us, that you would declare us right, that you would accept us, that you would bring us home, that you would give up your only son, that we could be called your children. Open our hearts and our lives to your love, that we would boast in you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.